You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. When you do question and answer times like this, when it's not a formal presentation where I get up and you folks just kind of sit and listen and I talk or Steve talks, whoever talks, when it's more interactive, sometimes the Lord does more during these times than he does during the preaching times. And other times, something leaks. <laughs> but let's ask the Lord to bless uh, our interaction together today. Father, we're grateful that as a group of believers, as brothers and sisters who belong to the same Lord, and believe the same book, and have the same spirit, the same faith, and the same hope, that we can interact together freely, dialogue openly, and differ about some things, and uh, perhaps understand more of the mystery of our faith. We're thankful for that which is clear, that Jesus Christ is God, He's our Savior, that one day we're going to be home. We're thankful for all that which is clear. It's the root, the anchor of our souls. And for those areas that are still confusing to us, we pray that you give us wisdom as we interact today. We ask your blessing on this time, that you'll, that you'll meet needs and the questions will be asked and some of the comments out of my mouth will be guided by yourself in ways that will be an encouragement to, to me and to all of your people gathered here. Commit the time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're open. The way it works is if you don't ask questions, I go home. Okay, I have a gentleman coming up to the microphone here right away. Hi, Larry. Um, as I read Scripture, there seems to be in many places in the Old and the New Testament um, what seems to me to be... Uh, for lack of a better term, conditional promises that God makes. And uh, they, at least it seems that way to me. And for instance, in something like Psalm 37 where it says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Things like that. If you, then he. And when I read that kind of stuff, I can't help but develop an expectation of God and I'm just wondering how to, if, 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 if there's any way to help from, keep from doing that, or if I'm going to be doing that inevitably, how to have the right expectation of God in light of these promises that seem to be made throughout the scriptures. Okay. One of the problems with answering questions is sometimes the one who tries to answer doesn't catch the real significance of the question. I think you're asking something important, but I may not get your point. Let's see if I do all right with your question. I think what I hear you saying is that uh, are there not some promises in Scripture that seem to indicate if I do this, then God will do that? Does that not put me in a position of holding God in a, in a sense of putting him under obligation? Does that not uh, make it a, a negotiated kind of a thing where if I do such and such, then I can expect God to do something? Is that the direction of your question? Well, the direction is that when I read that those things, inevitably, I end up having an expectation. Okay, when you read those things, you end up having an expectation. I see nothing wrong with having expectations of God to keep the promises that he makes clear. God will keep his promises. I have an expectation of heaven. Uh, one of the things that has really surprised me, frankly, my first experience with death up front has been my brother's death. And um, I tend to be a guy that struggles with doubt about a fair number of things. But I frankly, have not had a moment's doubt as to where Bill is, and I've not had a moment's lack of peace about the fact that Bill's with the Lord, and one day I'm going to see him again. 
and I've not lost Bill as a brother. I just postponed some of the fellowship for the time. And, um, and I have a full expectation of that. I believe God has made a clear promise that I go to prepare a place for you, and there's an expectation attached to that. And um, that's just, um, in my mind, giving me the confidence, or it is, it is right for me to enjoy the confidence that God will keep his word. Now, the difficulty comes in just what, what he really has promised. And I believe, as I think I mentioned the other night, that a lot of times we tend to claim promises God has never made. And that we develop a variety of expectations that when they don't come true, then our faith is shattered. And I think those things that are not abundantly crystal clear in the scripture, things like you're saved by the blood of Christ and when you die you go to heaven, apart from a couple of very clear promises, I think it's wise for us to hold in tension our understanding of a variety of texts. Delight thyself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know, what exactly does that mean? Is that something which I can choose this morning to delight myself in the Lord? And then I operationalize that by saying I will have my devotional time because that's delighting myself in the Lord. And now I expect him to give me the desires of my heart, which is that this will happen today. Well, that's pretty dangerous mishandling of the text in my mind. We can get a lot of expectations out of the text that really aren't there in the first place at all. Verses like train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. My position on a lot of verses like that that we typically claim as promises is that in fact they're principles as opposed to promises. And, um, you know, what do you do when somebody that you've prayed for for years dies without ever confessing the Lord? There are parents whose hearts are broken over that sort of thing, and they look at a verse like that and say, I had expectations and God let me down. Uh, I take that verse not to be a matter of saying that if you take your kid to Sunday school every year for the first 15 years, when he's old, he'll be fine. I just don't think that's the way it, it, is, it was intended to be taken, but we often do get expectations created like that. And I think we just be are, are very well advised to allow those areas that are not super clear to remain a little bit of a mystery and to place our confidence in the character of God when everything he does, when things that he does seem to jar our expectations, what must not be jarred is our confidence in his character, that the judge of all the earth will do right and one day we'll understand that. And until then, our expectations can, be a, can, be in the, can, can get in the way of our faith. Charlie. Good morning, Lair. Um, Chuck, how you doing? Oh, real good. Uh, I like your hat. <laughs> thanks. Just teasing. <laughs> uh, um, you probably know what I'm going to ask. It's the same question I asked Steve Brown. I think you were here the other day. Uh, I, I would just like to hear you expound upon the, the most... Uh, I told you once before, when we met in the hallway... Ruth and I were really blessed by a set of tapes we heard you do on freedom. And, uh, and, and you touched on some of it last night as far as tell me more about the veracity of the law written upon our hearts. And number one, the freedom that brings. And number two, the confidence that it brings. Talking about the New Covenant, Jeremiah in chapter 31, um, one of the Old Testament passages talking about the new covenant says this that the law of God will be written on our hearts and then very strikingly it says at that point no man will need a teacher telling him this is the way of the Lord this is the way of the Lord I rather think that we're living in days when the truth of the new covenant and the freedom that gives us to live according to deep internal realities is being obscured by the number of experts we have in this in our Christian world that are telling us how to live in every situation um, we're trying to raise our kids and figuring out how to do that and all of us want someone to tell us what to do and that was the gist of what I talked about last night God will you help me will you teach me I don't know what to do here 
and um, if I can find some expert who'll tell me what to do, then I'll glump onto him. That, by the way, is one reason, is one way that a lot of guru-type people get followings, by being very sure of themselves. And, uh, and I think it's a, it, it has the potential to be a very, very serious mistake. What Charlie's getting at, I think, in his question, and um, something that I think is a very important thought, is that, is that when I'm walking in fellowship with the Lord, and that's, uh, you know, what does that mean? That you have devotions every day? Sure, that's probably included to some degree, but it's a lot richer concept than that. That when I'm walking in fellowship with the Lord, what I believe that gives me freedom to do is when I'm faced with a decision, what do I do when my daughter does this? How do I handle this particular situation? What's the principle? Will somebody teach me? Rather than that, I think it gives me the freedom to, in a very meaningful sense, trust my redeemed heart. I believe it's a legitimate thing for me, in fellowship with the Lord, to, to ask him to impress upon me what, the, what direction he would like me to go and not to be dependent on experts to tell me what to do. One of the interesting things as I travel about and respond to questions sometimes is people like to think that the guy with the mic knows a whole lot more than he does. If you knew my personal life, you know I live in a lot of confusion a lot of the time. And if you knew me personally real well, you all probably would walk out the door and not ask me one more question. <laughs> um, but I do believe that the fact that the law has been written on my heart means that something profoundly different is going on inside of me. And and that, that ultimately, I think, reduces to, not reduces, that's the wrong phrase, but means that the Spirit of God really is energizing me to want to seek after the Lord. And now in the middle of that desire to seek after the Lord, I think it's my responsibility to exercise the courage to make decisions for my life without dependence on some expert outside of myself. And that allows me to have a great deal of freedom as opposed to wondering, well, what is the right thing to do now? Don't all of us have this thought that there's a right thing to do and if we can figure out what it is, then we'll be all right. Well, I don't think that's how it works. I think the right thing to do is to create a response based on our passion for God to all of life's situations, and we're privileged to do that because of the New Covenant. That's my understanding of it. Uh, Larry, the, uh, some, of, some of the difficulties that we experience, I think, have to do with the semantics, the words we use. Promises versus principles. Promises are like something that I can rely on 100%. A principle, it sounds almost like, well, usually that's how it is, but there's only a certain probability, and you may be the exception. That doesn't change the principle. You know, that is still the goal, but in a particular case, we may have an exception. And I wonder if you would relieve many a heart, mine included, by reaffirming something that I believe to be true. We have certain promises, and one of the most common that is used and, and reinterpreted by some people is, I will never leave you nor forsake you, which was a promise to an individual <clears throat> and people extended to everybody. In a sense, that is a principle too, because normally we sense God's presence as soon as we turn to him in prayer. I think it is much more than a principle. I think it's a fact. God never leaves or forsakes his beloved. And um, the only thing that, that separates us is our feeling 
that either we are not worthy or who knows, maybe God is busy somewhere else. It's not that God forgets us. He has assured us about the lilies, the sparrow. He, he remembers all his creation. And so I ask you to, to restate, rather than use abstract words like principle, and say fact, because we know what facts are. I think God never violates what you call principles. It's not a matter of probability or hope, or hoping that we are inside that narrow confine of where the principle applies versus being excluded by some flaw in us. In the book of Ezra, when the second temple was being built, we're told that there was a great cry of rejoicing and laughter and celebration as the younger folks saw the temple being rebuilt. Remember that passage? And then in Haggai, we're told that some of the older folks who saw the glory of the former temple were weeping while the young folks were laughing. And I would suggest that if you talk to the older folks during that particular time and said, are you experiencing the joy of the presence of God, that perhaps a fair number of them in their tears looking at the temple that was a pitiful uh, excuse in their mind after the wonderful first temple that had been destroyed and they were wondering, God, what are you doing? Are things going to go well? What's the problem? It doesn't look as though God is with us. It looks as though God has forsaken us. And the older folks were disconsolate. Now, the fact of the matter is, our brother has well pointed out, the fact of the matter is that God, of course, never leaves. God, of course, never forsakes that in the middle of any situation, his purposes always are at work. He's always working to accomplish what he says he's going to accomplish. And in that passage in Haggai, it's interesting that, um, that the Lord spoke to the ones who were disconsolate, not to the celebrators. He spoke to the ones who were looking at the second temple and saying, this isn't much in comparison with the first. And then he said, but I'd like to remind you of who I am and what my intentions are. The glory of the temple, the glory of the Lord, the glory of what I'm going to do eventually will so overshadow all the glory you've ever seen that you can relax in the fact that I'm still at work to achieve my purposes. So I appreciate the reminder, and I couldn't endorse it more strongly, that God's promise to always act consistently with his character is something that we can count on. But even though that's a fact, it often is not our experience. I think about when Moses went back to uh, deliver his people from Egypt, and as he went back in to talk to the people, and to talk to Pharaoh, rather, and to get them released, nothing but trouble came initially. And the Hebrews' response, the Israelites' response, when Moses began talking and uh, acting as the great deliverer, was to get him in worse trouble. And Pharaoh ended up putting him in worse labor than before Moses came. And they were saying, well, thanks a lot. If you're God's deliverer, why don't you take a hike? That basically was their move. And is it a fact that in the middle of all their um, sense of God is not doing anything at all, things are getting worse, is it a fact that in the middle of all that, God was still very much at work, of course. And I think that's the great battle for the Christian. To put it real simply, to believe in the facts. And I appreciate your, your comments about principle versus promise. There are certain just plain old facts. And that's that God is God and he'll always act consistently with his character, even when it seems like Pharaoh was winning and we're having to build bricks with less material. And even when it seems that our efforts to build the kingdom are resulting in a pitiful little mess of an effort, that still, the fact is that God is with us, he's not going to leave us, and his promises are ripe and fast. So I, what you've asked me to endorse, I have zero trouble endorsing. Thank you. Yeah.
Uh, I'm going to leave here after all that's been said with great joy uh, for having heard about the garage last night. <laughs> I'm so grateful for that. I just made that story up. I thought it was related. Well, uh, Judy and I have a question uh, that um, you've probably already answered in some ways uh, by previous questions and answers here. But uh, hers specifically is, you want to avoid being an enabler, but at the same time you want to be available for restoration. How does tough love apply when dealing with rebellious family members, a child, husband, wife? And then I just expand that a bit uh, with there's a lot of good that's been done in the body, much good, but with some of the difficulties that people have gotten into teaching authority, submission, various roles, etc., uh, you're calling for a redemptive uh, remnant to move in, be salt, mentors, uh, helpers, uh, disciples. Uh, how do you respond to some of these great difficulties that have been brought up? And I'm not necessarily qualifying any of them. You're trying to get me in trouble. Yes. <laughs> Before you leave the mic, let me uh, ask you to clarify a thing or two. Um, the phrase bold love means, a, or tough love, means a lot of things to a lot of people. I know that there have been a, a number of books out. Uh, Dobson talks about loving tough in certain ways. Uh, would you define what you mean by tough love so I can respond? Question one back to you, and then question two back to you. Uh, I'm not sure if I understand the direction you're asking in terms of the authority and submission. Just uh, clarify that for me, if you would, as well, then I'll try to respond. Well, I think and uh, Judy would have to help me a little bit here on her perception of it. But I think we've heard tough love as something of you finally get to a place where the individual, whether it be parent, child, uh, sibling, whatever, is just not responding. And so there comes a line where you have to part company, okay. move away. Okay. That would be it. And then uh, the difficulties, uh, people, ministers, preachers, teach, authority and submission in a and you're speaking in marriage particularly marriage particularly but also among the congregations okay. you'll find a lot of wounded congregation members uh, who believe that they're just to be subservient doormat like and how we're going to move beyond this to being the people of God okay let me see if I can respond to those two good questions first the notion of tough love um, let me respond by shifting responsibility for the answer initially to a, an excellent book that my colleague has just written called Bold Love. And that's his phrase that really is not too different from tough love, but Dan Allender has a new book published by Nav Press called Bold Love that I would highly recommend. The basic thrust of that book overlaps with the question to at least some degree. He's asking the question, when you've been abused by somebody, whether it's in significant childhood ways or just in little trivial ways, a waitress who glares at you when you ask for more coffee, all the way from those trivial little everyday things to the real significant things of a, of, a, of a parent or somebody that has abused you rather badly. What does it mean to love people that have badly used you? And, um, and Dan has, I think, a very provocative and important book. Bold Love would be, I think, my answer to the question. Read the book. Now, let me just say a little more. Um, I think that one of the difficulties with, with tough love, as it's been talked about, is that unless you talk at the motivational level, tough love can often be self-protective and manipulative. Unless you deal at the motivational level, um, that what is called tough love, the actual behaviors that people engage in and say, well, I'm just loving tough. I'm, I've come to a point, and for redemptive purposes in this person's life, 
I need to withdraw myself, I need to cut off relationship, I need to cut off fellowship, that many times that can spring out of a very angry heart, which means it isn't loving at all. That can spring out of a very manipulative heart that basically is saying, this is going to change that person. When your real motivation is to find some resource within you that you can use to get that person what the way he or she ought to be, that's just not love. That's, that's manipulation. And the other thing that it can be, if you don't look at your motivation carefully, is that it can be nothing ultimately other than self-protection. That I just plain hurt, and the reason I'm going to love tough, the reason I'm going to withdraw from fellowship, has little to do, maybe nothing to do, with the redemptive work of God and the other person's life through you, but rather it's a matter sometimes of, um, I just don't like the hurt anymore being around this person, so I'm just going to cut off relationship, not the hurt anymore. I know a lot of people, and this is a tragedy, that have gone to different counselors, and I suppose a couple of my folks have misunderstood me as well and done this, and uh, hear about their parents or a spouse or a friend, and uh, realize that they really are angry, they really have been offended by this person, and they learn to take care of themselves. One of the great focuses in a lot of counseling today is you've got to learn self-love, you've got to learn a philosophy of self-care. I heard a Christian psychiatrist at a conference six months ago give a whole talk on self-care. We need a, a great need in the church today is a philosophy of self-care. I don't agree with that. That is important to take care of yourself. I think when you're tired, you want to sleep. I think when... Uh, when um, are we getting a message from elsewhere, perhaps? Um, I think that, that it's important to take care of yourself. I wouldn't want to argue against that, but a whole lot of tough love runs the risk of being nothing more than taking care of yourself legitimately. Can I clarify that for a bit? Because it really is an important point. Rachel and I, um, over the years, have had the opportunity to have different people live with us. And we've had that quite a bit. Some of our children's friends who have been thrown out of their homes by their parents, we've taken them in a time or two, and some other folks we've had live with us. Well, there was one woman, um, a wonderful lady, whose husband just decided to divorce her, and she was heartbroken, and she moved in with us for a couple of months. Well, one night, um, one, one night, as my wife and I went to bed, she just began to kind of shake and kind of lose it. And again, right away, because I'm trained, I picked up that something was wrong. And, um, and um, said to her, well, how can I help you? Um, and, and her response was that, that the, the pressures of always giving were just plain getting to her. And, and I said, honey, you're a higher priority to me than the woman that's living in our home, and I don't think it's right to... Uh, to put to put the kind of pressure on you that is now being put on. The next morning, I asked that woman to leave. Graciously, and we didn't kick her out, anything like that, and she was very understanding. She now works for me. She's a good friend. Um, but is that is that self-care? I think it is. Is that legitimate? Boy, you bet. You know, when you're tired, take a nap. I'm all for self-care, but it's not your final value. And a lot of times, tough love can be nothing more than an expression of self-care. A lot of counseling groups, a lot of counselors are basically saying the total priority is take care of yourself. I think that's a horrendous mistake as a final value, but it happens all the time. If, however, you're willing to explore your motivation, and if you're willing to say that, yeah, a lot of anger can creep in, a lot of self-protection, a lot of manipulation, but God, I want to spend time with you, I want to be dealing with my own heart before you, until I get to the point where I hunger for the restoration of the one who's offended me, where I'm deeply hungering for the well-being of this son or daughter who has become incorrigible, where I'm hungering for the restoration of this man or woman with whom I'm living in a marital relationship and they're abusing me so deeply, is there a place in the middle of all that for taking certain stands? My answer is yeah. 
There is a place for what is normally called tough love. Now to go to the second question about submission and authority, just a sentence or two on that. That could take a long time and I could get myself in real trouble. Um, let me tell you a position. If you want to read my discussion of it, the, the book Men and Women that I've written has a discussion of what I'm about to say. My understanding of submission is that, um, is that all of us are to be submissive to one another. Obviously the Bible teaches that in Ephesians 5, submitting one to another in the fear of Christ. And, um, and I think submission is not so much a matter of, you know, you, you salute and do what you're told. A lot of folks have talked about the word for submission, hupotasso, as a military term, and argued that it really is a matter of a private to a sergeant obeying what the sergeant says. I don't think that's the thought of it at all. The idea of hupotasso is not a military, I will do what you tell me, sir. It's more the idea of arranging yourself within a larger order for a greater purpose. When soldiers march in step, they walk together because they're part of a larger design. Remember the old Gomer Pyle television show? Remember when Sergeant Carter would yell at Gomer as the show would start? They're all walking along, these Marines, and he's kind of clumsily missing out. Had that been done back in the Greek culture and Sergeant Carter spoke in Greek, he would have hollered out, Hupatasso, Gomer. Get in line with a larger design for a greater purpose than you. That means that my responsibility is to submit to my wife. Her responsibility is to submit to me. Do I have an authority in our marriage that's different than the authority of my wife? Tickless question. Answer in my mind is, God has given me the authority to use all the resources of manhood on her behalf. I am to take the resources of masculinity and submit them to the larger purposes of God in this one woman's life. She is to take the resources of femininity and submit them to the larger purposes of God in this particular man's life. Now, what are the resources of masculinity and femininity? I believe that men were called upon and are built to move in in a strong, advocating, leadership, decisive capacity. Do I believe men are head of the homes? Yeah, I really believe that. But that to me is not a, a sheriff tells the person what to do. It's a man submitting his strength for the purposes of nourishing his wife's soul. It isn't, I'm the boss, you do what I say. It's, I want to touch your soul in a way that's going to bring you alive with the joys of your womanhood. And as a woman submits herself to her husband, she has authority. All of us have authority. What's our authority? Answer, to serve. That's our authority. The Lord said, I teach authority, but not as the Gentiles teach. Watch me, watch your feet. As Steve talked about so effectively a couple nights ago. Watch me as I serve. Therefore, submission is nothing more than using whatever resources you have for the well-being of another. In a marriage, that, in my mind, means a woman is going to be supported, nourishing, tender, involved. A husband's going to be strong, leading, decisive. Why? Because he's the boss. No, it's what his wife longs for. How many of you wives, how many of you women, want to be married to a wimp? Of course you don't. You want to be married to a tyrant? Of course you don't. You want to be married to a man. And what a man wants, be married to a woman question is, what do those terms deeply and richly mean? And when you understand that, then I think you understand, you understand authority and submission in the home. Larry, you've already touched on the answer to what I'm going to ask quite a bit. But uh, a lot of Christian counselors, I've heard this before, they say that like a, a woman who's living in an abusive relationship, you know, God does not expect you know them to stay together. And this has been used, and I've never seen any scripture to back this up, but this has been used as a justification for separation, divorce, and even remarriage. And uh, this is even within the Christian community, too. And I was just wondering if you could uh, comment on this. Now, by abusive, I mean either 
not necessarily life-threatening, but you know, like you know, let's say emotionally abusive. You both determined to get me in hot water. <laughs> I tell you, about my views on divorce and all this and separation. Well, I just believe what the Bible says. Next question. <laughs> um, oh, I'll say a few things. Steve takes risks. I guess I can do it. Um, we, we live in a psychologically saturated society. And that has done a great deal of damage to the church. I was in England a little bit ago talking with a leading Christian counselor over there, a man named Selwyn Hughes, marvelous Christian counselor. And uh, he said to me that, you know, England is so far behind the states in Christian counseling, could you import what you have over there to England? And I said, you wouldn't want it. I said, be grateful for the fact that you haven't caught up. Progress isn't always the best. I'm not sure if Christian counseling, as it... As, a, as a, in an all-encompassing kind of a way as much of a gift to the church. I believe in counseling. Don't misunderstand me. A lot of you folks have told me this week you've been to a counselor and been very, very helped, and I'm grateful to hear that. I think some people I've talked to might say some similar things, I hope at least. So I'm an advocate of counseling if what you mean by that is sitting down with people and talking about their life in light of God's Word. Of course I'm in favor of that. Just stop the word counseling and talk about being a friend and good fellowship and some spiritual direction, some good pastoring, some good shepherding. That's all counseling ultimately is, discipleship, really. Um... But I think we do live in a very psychologically saturated society where we have learned to become aware of every little thing that's happening in our souls and feel like the most important thing is to respond to it. And we've become a rather soft as opposed to tough group of people. And I think that many times in a marital situation, we start saying that our number one value, our number one priority is to see to it that my dignity as a person is honored. And that when, that when that dignity is somehow demeaned by my mate, then that justifies me to do whatever recourse is required to, to regain my sense of dignity. That oftentimes is a philosophy that lies behind a lot of separations. Well, our Lord sure didn't model that in terms of losing dignity, being humiliated, being demeaned for the sake of a higher purpose, to glorify his Father, to reach out and to, and to save his people. Our Lord didn't, didn't model anything close to the idea of, at all costs, make sure no one treats you badly. That's not what he modeled at all. He was treated terribly. And it was part of his father's plan. So that's why I've said the other night that I really think that our great need in the church is not for a more effective theology of recovery, recovering our dignity, our sense of self, our sense of value, but rather a theology of suffering. How do you suffer when you're abused? How do you suffer when you're treated? Now, does there come a time when it's appropriate in the middle of an abusive situation to preserve yourself from abuse? And my answer is, of course there is. If, um, if a man were coming at a, to use an extreme, rather silly example, but obviously it happens sometimes, if a man were coming at a woman to hit her, get a baseball bat and bash her on the head, what should she do? Does her theology of suffering mean stand still and let her skull be crushed? No, I think she ought to duck the bat and call the police. I think that got him put in jail for beating up his wife. That's just illegal. You shouldn't do it. And I think she ought to call the cops. And I'd call that submissive. Because she's using her resources, she could be at least, in a redemptive way on behalf of this abuser. I think that really could be the case. The Lord is clear that he just hates divorce. That's not his, not his intention. It's not his design. Is there ever a reason for divorce? Well, here's where we have the positions that the Christians debate the issue. Some folks say there's zero grounds for divorce. Some folks say one. Some folks say two. Um, my understanding of the Corinthians passage when it says if the unbeliever um, departs, let that unbeliever depart, my understanding of that passage is you must define the word depart very carefully. What does it mean for an unbeliever to depart? 
If a person is making no indication at all, his life bears no fruit of being a Christian, there's no clear profession of faith, and the person is moving in directions that are obviously ungodly, and if they depart from what? I don't believe that means physical separation. I believe that departing the, the marriage is the opposite of entering the marriage. Entering the marriage is not just a matter of physical proximity because people can get together physically and it's immoral. Entering the marriage is not merely physical proximity, it's making a covenant and honoring it. Therefore, I think departing a marriage is shattering that covenant and saying that I no longer feel obligated to honor the covenant of, of ministering to you as a man or as a woman. When the unbeliever does that, the believer is free, and at that particular point, when that is a clearly understood reality, as many people in the local church, pastor and others, would support that particular perception, then I would have no objection to divorce. I've been struggling with that Ezekiel passage <laughs> and all the disruption. Uh-huh. And I was Which wondering... Passage? Well, the, the one... Or the cutting no, off noses? the noses one. <laughs> right. And I was struggling with it. Picture. It seems like such a judgment of God. And I was wondering how does that get reconciled with how we're perfect in God's sight because of the cross we have the righteousness of Christ and now it seems like well because we're so terrible he's going to judge us now or some kind of like I just been dealing with that you know trying to figure out how that is because um, I know that I deserve that kind of judgment but I thought Jesus took it for me (laughs) I appreciate the chance to clarify there is therefore now no condemnation no possibility of getting your nose cut off because um, we kind of like our noses, don't we? Some wouldn't mind them reshaped, but they wouldn't want them cut off. Um, No, I would not want you to misunderstand me there at all. All I'm suggesting there is that the Christian who's maturing is not one who lives under threat of punishment. The Christian who's maturing is one who lives under grace, which means the punishment has been completely taken by the Lord. I believe in the vicarious atonement, substitutionary atonement. And I believe our Lord died in my place. He became sin for me. And all the wrath of a holy God against sin was directed to Jesus on the cross. Therefore, there's no wrath left for me. I'm in no danger of judgment in the sense of eternal separation from God, receiving the the, the due justice of my sins. That's just not going to happen because I'm covered by the blood. I'm in Christ and I believe all that. What I want to argue is that the maturing Christian is one who knows that were it not for the grace of God, that that really is what I deserve at any given moment. Now, that makes me value then forgiveness all the more greatly. Rachel and I spent three months in Cambridge a couple years ago. And we went to a church there in the little town of Cambridge, beautiful place, Eden Baptist Church we went to. And a pastor there named Roy Clemens, a wonderful expositor of scripture, we listened to him several times. And one Sunday he was preaching through Romans 2 and he said this to the audience. He said, I want you all to write down the one thing that you value more than anything else in your life. What means more to you than anything else in your life as you live? And um, he wasn't saying it in a really religious context. It was a church service, but he didn't kind of give it away. And we're all thinking about what do we value most and uh, writing down a few different things. And then he said, if you've not put down the word forgiveness, the likelihood is you don't really grasp the gospel. Now, what I mean when I talk about passages like cutting off noses and how, how, how wicked we are, it's not to put us on a big guilt trip and say, you terrible person, you better face how bad you are. It's rather to rejoice in the forgiveness of God that delivers me from ever having to deal with that. Now, God as a good father is still going to discipline. 
He's still going to deal with me, but now his purposes are never judicial in the sense of punishment for sin. They're all now a family matter of restoring me to the likeness of Christ. That's always the case. But I think to understand the severity of our sinfulness is crucial to understand the immensity of our redemption. I was with um, one of my heroes. Do you all have heroes? Good to have heroes, isn't it? One of my heroes is a gentleman named David Broughton Knox. Now that for an English name. He's a professor was a professor for years of theology in Sydney, Australia. Now he's in Cape Town, South Africa. And we were with him in South Africa a couple of years back. And Dr. Knox and I and uh, Rachel and his wife were walking up to the Cape of Good Hope, that gorgeous place where you overlook where the two oceans meet, you know. And he and I were standing there, and Rachel has a picture of this gentleman and myself leaning over the wall looking at the two oceans. It's a meaningful picture for me. And, and I was talking with him um, about some things that Rachel and I have been overwhelmed by. We had a chance to tour Soweto, a community in South Africa that was a scene of riots, some very severe riots many years ago, and often a lot of unrest, and recently some. And it's a very, very sad place to be. Um, they have, if you stand up on a hill, you can look over the hill, and you can see tin huts that are about five feet wide and five feet this way, five feet tall, no floor but the dirt. And you see them uh, ceiling to ceiling, about 10,000 of them. And in each hut, about four or five image bearers live. No running water. Just a little hut. Four or five people live. Five feet by five feet. Ten thousand of them. And I've seen poverty, and we have poverty like that in the States. This is not all that unique. But it, for some reason, that just hit me. And Rachel and I literally just were overwhelmed by this. Dr. Knox and I were standing overlooking the Cape of Good Hope, and I said to him, when you're with a brilliant theologian whose mind is he's considered by some the finest theological mind alive today in that part of the world when you're with a guy like that you want to think of something intelligent to say <laughs> so I was standing with him and I said Dr. Knox do you ever get overwhelmed with the sadness of life and the suffering of people I was thinking of Soweto I thought that was pretty good you know. and I thought he'd say oh this young man wants to think rather deeply good I'll engage my mind and talk with him for a bit but as I asked the question, and I meant it, I wasn't being manipulative, really, I meant it. Do you ever get overwhelmed by just the suffering of people? And he's a very gracious, very kind man, so his response sounds harsh, but it wasn't. He looked away and he said, no. <laughs> oh, me neither, of course. I was just wondering. <clears throat> and he went on to say, but I'm overwhelmed by the fact that God bothers to do anything about it at all. And I thought, he's thinking differently than me. <laughs> There's a different perspective here. And as I thought about that and reflected and talked to him a little further, I think I understand what he means in one of his books when he says, and it's an old sentence, you've all heard it, that the good news begins always with bad news. You can't get to the good news without a discussion of bad news. And that's all I wanted to emphasize by looking at that passage. There's something wrong with me that lingers post-salvation. I'm not away from the flesh entirely. Is there a sin nature, whatever that metaphor means? Yes. I'm not perfect. I still sin. And if I were to be judged today apart from the blood, he'd cut off my nose. I've not gotten good enough for him to say, now you're good enough, the blood's no longer relevant, everything's fine. You see, it doesn't work that way. If you were to judge me, in the, if God were to judge me, not you, if God were to judge me for the last 60 seconds of my life, because I've been up here talking, and God were to, were to determine my eternal destiny 
on the quality of the last 60 seconds of my life, where would I go? Do I love perfectly? When the microscope of His holiness exposes my heart, is there absolute purity there? Of course not. And the Lord says it requires absolute purity to get into heaven. My response is, I'm licked. I'm totally licked. And his response is, you sure are. Now you're ready for the good news. And that's all I meant to emphasize with the, with the talking about Ezekiel 23, is it? I got two questions, and they're related. Um, first is, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in the midst of all this? I often hear a lot of counseling and advice, and uh, there's very little emphasis upon, well, what does the Holy Spirit do in the healing process, and uh, how does that help? And if you could relate it to Ephesians uh, 3.16 about being strengthened by the Holy Spirit in the inner man. Uh, and then also the second question is if you could speak to identifying demonic activity from human experience. Okay. <laughs> uh, whose experience did you have in mind? All of ours. All of ours, okay. First question having to do with the role of the Holy Spirit. I think it's... Um, it's true that in Christian counseling, the camps seem to be divided, uh, divided into those who, although they would not espouse this, this position, really have a rather naturalistic approach to counseling, where spiritual matters don't seem to be emphasized, where prayer is not terribly important, where somehow the wisdom of the counselor and the ability to insightfully discern what's going on and expose motivations and to make connections between present symptoms and past pains and all that sort of thing uh, seems to crowd the Holy Spirit out of any particular role. He's kind of there in case you get to something spiritual, and then maybe he'll come in and do something. And you have a group that I think are rather naturalistic in their approach. Then, as always, in Christian circles and all cultural circles, you have a reaction. You have a reaction on the other side to those who don't want to be naturalistic, they want to be supernaturalistic, and then the Holy Spirit uh, becomes emphasized in a way that, that there seems to be a, uh, a, a minimization of any human involvement and a minimization of any of the, the skills of a counselor and what God can do through a person as they expose and talk and deal. And all that's required is simply a laying on of hands kind of mentality. And all that's required is a casting out of demonic influence and a, and a, and a means of simply somehow allowing the Holy Spirit to be more released in a person's life. And that then called supernaturalism. You have these two extremes, and I think they are two extremes, that both have a bit of truth, but miss the perfect midpoint, which I'm about to define. Um, <laughs> I can't define the perfect midpoint at all, but, but I would argue that, that, the, that the work of the Holy Spirit in counseling is no different than the work of the Holy Spirit in every other sphere of Christian experience, which is what? What is the work of the Holy Spirit ultimately? There's a lot of verses that define that he came to the world to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. A lot of verses about the Holy Spirit's work. But you can summarize it all, can't you, by saying that the Holy Spirit's great delight is to point to Jesus. That's what he does. He leads in worship. He points to Christ. He says, he's the answer. Look at him. If you're a Trinitarian, and I presume you all are because orthodoxy requires it, if you're a Trinitarian, then you believe that the fundamental reality of the universe is relationship. You believe that truth is not the fundamental reality in the universe. Truth is critical. I believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. But I believe in inerrancy. I believe that truth is crucial. Why? Because truth points to that which is crucial, which is 
relationship. God exists eternally in relationship. Now, when you look at the way he relates to each other, there's the mystery. When you look at the way the Father, Son, and Spirit relate to each other, you have the model of perfect relationship. What is perfect relationship? Answer, very simply, other-centered relationship. You have the Father who honors the Son. You have the Son who obeys the Father. You have the Spirit who always points to Christ. They say two's a crowd, three's company. Not in the Trinity. Why? Because they're perfectly other-centered. The Holy Spirit's other-centered joy is always to point to Christ. Now, in the counseling arena, what I think his primary work is, and as I counsel what I'm praying, and sometimes I'll pray aloud, sometimes silently, when, I, when my prayer is that the Holy Spirit, through his word, will expose those parts of the human soul that reduce that individual to through my life, through my teaching, through my involvement, I believe counseling is a two-part procedure. It's expose and affirm, or disrupt and entice. There's a breaking down and a building up. And the breaking down process is to expose that which is going on beneath the surface that's very difficult and painful, but to expose it in such a way that you're exposing that which only Christ can deal with, and then you bring to bear the resources of Christ. The Spirit of God convicts of sin and then presents the solution. So I think the Spirit of God is crucial to the whole work of counseling, but not in a mechanistic kind of a way. And he must not be thought of as window dressing where we can kind of put together the psychological wires and then also pray God's blessing doesn't work that way either. The second question had to do with demonic influence, and I'm not sure if I'm going to say too much about that. Again, I think the Christian church is so prone to excesses in either direction. And I believe in the route of the supernatural. I believe in a personal devil. I believe in the, in the presence of demonic activity. Uh, I believe in all of that, but um, this is an obvious thing to say, and you all would say it if you were sitting up here, that um, we can err on two sides, as always. Luther said the Christian life is like a drunk riding a horse. You fall off this side, then this side. Then this side. <laughs> And the one side you can fall off on is to forget the fact that we are involved in spiritual warfare, that there are principalities and powers of Ephesians 6 that we're dealing with, and to fall off on this side and not to take that into account, but to use our own wisdom to make life work. The other side is to become so preoccupied with demonic activity that basically we live our lives by casting out demons. And, and um, there are basically four schools of counseling in the Christian world today. There's a dynamic school, which says get insight into your problem, it'll go away. There's the moralistic school, which says shape up and you'll be fine. There's the recovery school, which says, follow 12 steps and you'll find God. There's the uh, deliverance school, which says, everything's a demonic problem, get rid of it somehow. Those are the four basic schools of Christian counseling today, and I think they all have something to say. There's a contribution made by each. So I believe in the reality of the demonic, but I certainly um, don't, don't uh, believe that problems are as simply solved as a lot of deliverance-type counselors assume. We've had a lot of experience in our counseling center with... Um, with folks who have had some real severe traumas in their background and are living in terrible agony today and have gone, to, uh, gone through a deliverance procedure and, um, and then months later they're seeing somebody else for far more difficult problems. It isn't as simple as oftentimes as just casting out a demon and things are fine. Human responsibility is far more involved and culpability far more needs to be wrestled with than something as simple as get rid of a foreign element within the soul and you'll be fine. We've got just about five minutes, I think, so we'll take a few more and then we'll have to quit. Larry, uh, the truths you've been teaching us this week are very profound. Thank uh, you. Next question. <laughs> I like your beginning. Uh, I wonder how you would advise us to present these to grown children who are very independent in their thinking in such a way that they would absorb them and use them to change their lives. How would you, approach, how would you um, present these 
some of the thoughts that you've heard this week to grown children yes. that are real independent. Right. Well, uh, my boys, of course, listen to all my tapes. <laughs> um, I haven't the slightest idea how to answer your question. <laughs> I really don't. Um, I, I, I think the only, the only answer that I can give, and I, I wish I could do a far better job at answering a good question, um, but I think the only answer I could give would be that when, 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 a, when a person, when I hear something that, that seems to be helpful to me, there's a very natural tendency to want to go to somebody else that you know that could be helped by understanding certain things and to move to them with a certain degree of enthusiasm that feels to them like aggression. And, um, and I think I would suggest that if anything that uh, either Steve or I have said this week that's been helpful and that you want to ponder over, you know what I'd suggest you do? I suggest for about a month you try to completely forget everything you've been taught this week. I really mean that. And after a month, see what sticks around in your mind. Sometimes during a week like this, we're all away, we've all come apart, we're enjoying good fellowship, good food, beautiful surroundings, wonderful music. And sometimes in this setting, things, things seem more important than they are. It's really true. And if I've said this much, I guarantee you, this much will be helpful. Maybe a month or two from now, this much will, you'll, you know, what did that crab guy talk about? I don't know, slightest idea. I'm not asking questions, I think. I don't know. But I remember one thought he said. Now think about arrogance and Malachi's. All I can recall from all that he said, but boy, that made a difference. All right, that's what the Lord has for you this week. And I would suggest that whatever the Lord has for you this week that lingers over time, that um, that, that be chewed on until it becomes a part of your life in an enticing way. And um, the real way to reach kids of any age is to puzzle them by the way you live. And then when, they, when their curiosity is aroused by what they see in you, then the questioning spirit is there. You know in Exodus 20 someplace, it says that um, when the Passover was being, uh, when God was giving directions for the Passover, he said, to the, he said to the fathers, he said, do this and this and this and this and this. And then he says, in Exodus 29, verse 12, I think it is, when your children ask you, Dad, what's all this Passover stuff about? Then you teach them. Principle, live your life in such a way that you puzzle your kids to the point where there's a questioning spirit within them, like, what's going on with her? And when you sense that spirit, that's what I think the psychologists mean by the phrase teachable moments. And that's when I think you have an opportunity to teach. You have no opportunity to teach unless something about your life has created an audience. Live it. Questions will come, at least in spirit form, if not directly asked. And then the opportunity will come to, to, um, to respond. We'll take time for just, I'm afraid, one more, folks. Our time is running out, so we'll just have time for... Um, we were in the book... The bookstore has a little book entitled Helping Children Understand Death. We have grandchildren who are five and seven. The seven-year-old is a very bright child. Um, their grandfather, their other grandfather, is unsaved, and um, he's very close. Um, and their, the... My son and his wife are, are Christians, and they're, they have good communication with their children, and we thought of, I thought about buying the book, which deals with death in a term of kind of glorifying, I mean, bringing memories back of, a, of this grandfather, which would be fine. And um, it um, sort of, it doesn't say it, but it sort of infers that, it doesn't say it, in fact, it really says against it, but it's in such soothing terms that it's kind of that 
everyone's going to heaven. However, later on they give the plan of salvation very clearly, that, and I'm sure our children have, grandchildren have heard it, and I think the older little girl may have come to Christ. However, uh, then it goes on. It, it gives the plan, as I said, it gives the plan of salvation. Now, uh, how would the mother, who is the daughter, handle this would she be able at that time would it be would this be good for her to work through this with them or would it be better for our son or would it be better to leave it alone and just answer questions I mean the book's very well done I don't mean to say it isn't but I just wonder how the mother could handle this and how the uh, she's um, an only child and I just question how she would be able to handle this with the children and, and how the children at their ages would be able to handle this book and would it be good for them? The, uh, it's the mother whose, whose, whose father is the unbelieving grandfather. Right. I see. Oh, boy. Solomon, where are you? We're not talking about easy matters here. I think I would um, obviously give a very, very incomplete answer by saying, by saying this that um, I would like to see that be handled more in a family context. I certainly wouldn't want to burden, if this were my situation, I wouldn't want to burden my wife with full responsibility for dealing with that. I would like, as the, as the man in that home, to be involved in the process of dealing with the situation. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is I, I don't think it's right at any age to, um, to sue the troubled heart with that which is not true. And um, I don't think there needs to be uh, the other extreme of, of, uh, of somehow making everything so horrible that the child has nightmares for years. But on the other hand, the, the notion that everyone who dies goes to heaven, man, if that's true and if we're misreading the text, I'll be thrilled. Um, but it's just not my understanding. If you heard Steve talk about universalism, the question and answer time, he spoke a lot of my heart. I'd love to believe universalism is accurate, but I just don't see it in the text. Um, and I think that it's, it's important to, um, to make sure that the flowers on the casket don't obscure the irregularity and the tragedy of death. And um, death is not a pretty experience, and no amount of flowers can make it that. And I think in talking with a seven-year-old child, I think I'd be quite willing to say that, um, that, that in order for a person to be with God, there, there needs to be a turning to Jesus and we want to be praying for granddad that before he dies that he will turn to Jesus and we want to trust that God will do that but if he doesn't turn to Jesus then just as is true for everybody else in the face of the earth there's some there's some very difficult consequences and we need to we need to face those I think I'd say that but I think I'd leave it not with the idea of oh my goodness grandpa's going to go to hell I think I wouldn't contradict that I wouldn't have the authority to but I want to go beyond that into saying that the only way, speaking as the father now, talking to child, the only way that I can really have joy in the middle of all this, and I want you to know this, daughter, that I believe that the Christ that I serve is really, really wonderful. And I don't know how he's going to handle all this, but we can have confidence in his goodness in some way that someday we're going to understand the goodness of God in a way that we'll have no questions that he's always done exactly that which is right. Um, a book that makes things too soothing and I've not read this book, and maybe it's excellent, but if there really is kind of a hinted at universalism, that everything's wonderful because everybody goes to heaven, I, I'd struggle with that. I'd, I'd struggle with that, with that message in any book.
Okay, folks, I think our time is about up and we're going to dismiss. Thank you for coming. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.